me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, where we are in the penultimate sermon in this series through 1 John. We're going to look only at two verses tonight in chapter 5, verse 16 and 17, but I will read again the passage we read last week, beginning in 13 to the end of the chapter. Apostle John writes in 1 John 5:13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Father in heaven, as we come to your word this morning, this evening that is, We pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding. We thank you, Lord, that you have sent your Son and that he has given us understanding so that we might know and understand the gospel that he proclaimed, that we've received. We pray yet again, Lord, that you would open our eyes and soften our hearts, that you would cause us to receive your word, to understand it rightly, and to believe it, to trust in it, to let it be the foundation upon which we rest. These things we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight I simply want to talk about these two verses, 1 John 5, 16 and 17, because of how difficult they can be. Some weeks ago in Sunday school, we talked about this issue from the perspective of Mark's gospel. And I want to talk about it now again from the perspective of 1 John 5 particularly this issue of a sin leading to death, which we'll come to in short order. But before we come to that, I want to emphasize the main point of the text. You see, John is addressing Christians, and he's, he's uh, giving them instructions about how to respond when they see a brother or sister in Christ who is committing a sin, when they see a brother or sister in Christ who is struggling in the Christian life. He gives them instructions on what they're to do. Now, if we didn't have this letter and I asked you, what do you think that you should do when you see something like this happen? Or what do you think that you would do if you see something like this take place? Most likely, you would respond with one of two responses. Either you would turn the other way and ignore it, let it go, or you would be inclined to reprove your brother or sister in Christ to correct them. And in different contexts, both of those actions might be, that is, action or inaction, may be appropriate. It takes wisdom to figure this out. But sometimes 
though it's important to be long-suffering and it's important sometimes to correct one another, there's something that's always right to do, and that is to pray. To pray on behalf of our brother or sister in Christ who is struggling in the Christian life. It's an enormous privilege. It's a great responsibility that God has given to us that we should pray for one another in this way. And it's what John would have us do. It's what he teaches us to do when he says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. Now, last week we saw that John wrote this letter to assure us that we have eternal life through faith in Christ. We saw that there in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That is, those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, those who have received the gospel that, uh, that has been passed down across the centuries from one generation to the next concerning Christ and who he is and what he's done to save us, we can be sure and we ought to be sure that we indeed possess eternal life. We also saw last week that as a consequence of this reality, we can confidently approach our Lord through prayer. For he hears us. He has made us his children. He has brought us into his kingdom. And therefore we have his ear. And if we have his ear, we know that when we pray according to his will, that he grants our requests. That doesn't mean he gives us everything for which we ask. For sometimes we pray in ways that are contrary to his will. And we saw that and we spoke about that last week. Not that it's always wrong in the way that we pray, but sometimes our prayers do not accord, very often our prayers do not accord with God's hidden will, his concealed will. And so we pray and we ask God for things and yet in this process we discern the will of God. Well, tonight John gives us a particular application of that instruction. A particular application of how we might pray. How we might pray for one another. And it has to do with when we see a brother or sister in Christ who is struggling in the Christian life, who is struggling with sin. We can and we should pray for that person. We should pray and God will grant them life. We're going to talk about what that means because it's a bit difficult to understand at first reading. And yet it's also this amazing promise, this amazing assurance, amazing privilege that God has given us that we might pray for one another and be confident that God will hear and answer that prayer. Now this text is something like a decision tree. I wonder if you know what that is. If you work in, uh, as an engineer or you work in the medical field, you've probably worked with a decision tree. It's a, it's a chart that asks you a series of questions, and each question is yes or no and leads you to a subsequent question until it finally directs you to some kind of concrete action which you might take. Well, here John's decision tree, if we were to put it in a chart, would read something like this. Did you witness, did you observe your brother committing a sin? If you answer yes, then the, a- the next question is, does the sin lead to death? And here the answer, if it's no... Then directs you, if not, ask God to grant him life, and he will. But if it is that sin that's leading to death, John says, I don't wish for you to pray about that. And uh, just acknowledge, this is a really confusing thing to read. What on earth is John saying? In some sense, the instructions are straightforward, but we do need to ask questions and answer them in order to really understand it. We need to understand what is a sin that leads to death. What is John talking about? And what kind of death is he talking about? 
What does he mean when he speaks about a sin that leads to death and distinguishes it from those which do not lead to death? Well, let me first suggest that the death in view is spiritual death. It's to be distinguished from eternal life. Now, there are many good and solid interpreters who take this to be a reference to physical death. And if they're correct, then John is speaking of something like what we find in 1 Corinthians 11.30. In that context, Paul reproved the Corinthian church because they were corrupting the Lord's Supper. They had taken the Lord's Supper and turned it into something other than a commemorative meal, whereby they were to remember uh, Christ's death and, um, and his sacrificial work for us. And they turned it into a fellowship that was very exclusive, a meal that was very exclusive and whereby they mistreated uh, those who were poor in their midst. And Paul told them in 1 Corinthians 11.30 that because of this, he says that, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. In other words, as a form of discipline, God had caused some to become weak and some to become ill and some even to die. It's a sobering thought that the Lord would discipline the Corinthian church in that way. It also shows us how badly things got out of hand. And we see a similar idea in James chapter 5. Here in James 5, 13 and through 16, James writes, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So in that similar context, James acknowledges that some people might, through the discipline of the Lord, become sick as a result of sin. And the remedy for that is that they should pray for one another, among many other things. They should call the elders. They should confess their sins one to another. And if what John is speaking about is physical death, then it would be the same kind of thing here. However, I don't think that that explanation makes sense. And here's why. First reason is that in those contexts with Paul's letter to the Corinthians and with James's letter, you see that they're not saying don't pray for the one whose sin has caused them to become ill or sick or is potentially leading to death. And James very clearly says, pray for that one. Seek that person's good. Call upon that person to repent. Come, and, and come together in that fellowship and pray for one another. The instruction is clearly towards restoration, towards prayer. And so that, there's, a, there's a seeming difference here where John is saying, I'm not telling you to pray for the one whose sin is unto death. Paul doesn't explicitly say that, but we can see from the broad scope of 1 Corinthians that Paul's desire is for the Corinthians to, to repent and to, to reform their ways. And we can see in 1 Corinthians 1 that Paul very clearly is praying for them and praying that God would strengthen their faith and God would build them up. So it doesn't really make sense if both Paul and, uh, or if Paul and James and, and John are all talking about the same thing. Why are they giving different instructions. A second reason, which I think is perhaps more persuasive, is that when we look through John's letter, he doesn't speak about life and death in terms of the physical reality of life and death here on earth. 
He repeatedly, over and over again, speaks about life and death in terms of the eternal reality of life and death. Well, let me give you a few examples. Just turn over to the very beginning again to 1 John chapter 1. We read, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. There in those first two verses in this letter, John presents Jesus Christ as the one who is life, and the one through whom we can have life. He is the eternal life, who was with the Father, and was revealed in the course of time. And turning over then again to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 23, we read these words in 23 and following. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. And you see the connection here, the idea that we saw in a prior week, is that the one who confesses the Son, the one who has Christ abiding in him and who is abiding in Christ, that person has this promise of eternal life. But the one who denies the Son, the one who rejects the gospel, the one who rejects Christ, that person does not have eternal life. Once more, as we continue reading on, we see in 1 John 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And so here we see this idea of uh, love being an evidence that we have been transferred from a position that is described as death to a position of life. But we're talking about people who have not yet physically died. You see that life and death here in John, 1 John 3.14 is clearly speaking about the eternal reality of life and death. It's about whether you are in the one who is the eternal life or you're not in him. And if you're not in him, then what are you in? You remain in death. And once more in 1 John 5.11 and following... We read, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so when we come to this verse and verse 16, and he says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death... He shall ask, and God will give him life. All along the way, through 1 John, we've seen him referring to life and death in this spiritual way, that is, in, this eternal, in the eternal reality of the thing. So it would be very strange, then, to come to chapter 5, verse 16, right here at the end of the letter, and see John completely shift gears in the way that he speaks about life and death without any explanation. He simply speaks about asking God to give this person life and assures us that God will. And in order to make sense of that, in lieu of the fact that John doesn't explain further what he means, the most likely situation is to assume 
that John is speaking about life and death in the same way that he has been throughout the letter. True life, eternal life, is found in Christ. The one who rejects Christ, the one who rejects the message of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that person remains in death. That person does not have life. Then this begins to help us to make sense of what John is speaking about when he says, I'm not asking you, I'm not telling you, I'm not instructing you to pray for the one who sins a sin leading to death. Most likely he is speaking about the sin committed by those false teachers who went out of the church. Their sin is a sin leading to death because they have rejected Christ. They have rejected the gospel. They are holding forth a false gospel. They have replaced it with one of their own making, one from their own imagination that holds that Christ is somehow other, somehow different than what was proclaimed from the beginning. They've rejected the one who is life. And their sin is a sin leading to death. True, that means that, it's, that they're not really brothers. But I think that what John is, is, is doing here is, is recognizing that it would be easy, given the historical context of this letter, for people to misunderstand what he is saying. He's saying something extraordinary, something bold, something amazing. That when we see one another struggling in the Christian life, to live up to the ideals of the Christian life that are set forward by Christ, we have the privilege to pray for them. And we are assured that as we pray, that God will hear our prayer and answer our prayer and grant that person life. That word there stands in for all of the benefits that accord to the one who is found in Christ. That is forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration to the fellowship with fellowship with the Father and the Son and fellowship with one another. All of those things that John has spoken about to this point. We can be assured that that person will be restored into that fellowship. But John then clarifies, I'm, I'm not saying to pray this kind of prayer for those who went out from our midst. I'm not saying to pray this kind of prayer for those who denied the gospel. Now, John's not saying don't pray for them at all. He's saying that you can't really pray this kind of bold prayer with such assurance for those individuals who've rejected the gospel. Because life, God is not going to grant life to one who is outside the one who is life. Life is not going to come apart from Christ, apart from a true and real faith in him. It's only going to come through him. And so we can pray that they could pray that those individuals who left might repent, might return, might uh, acknowledge their error and turn from it and believe the gospel. But they were not to be praying that kind of bold and, and certain uh, assured prayer that we might pray for one another. Pray for those who we see are holding fast to the faith that we've received. That's John's instruction here. And it leads us to, it raises other questions, as I've alluded to some extent as, uh, in my comments about whether or not one might pray ever for these individuals, is did they commit that sin that we know is the unforgivable sin? Did those false teachers who departed from the church commit the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that we read about in, um, in, the, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? We can't say that with certainty, but what I want to do then 
is to is to show you why we can't um, say that with certainty, but also show you the gravity of the sin that they committed. Show you why it is that John refers to this as a sin that leads to death, and how sobering it is. You see, some have argued that what he does have in view is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and I think there is at least some merit to this claim. But what I want to argue is that. Um, this sin that he describes exists within a category, a, a, a broader category of sins against the Holy Spirit. It may not rise to that level of what the Pharisees did in Matthew uh, chapter 12, for instance, where we'll turn and, and, and look at that passage. But it is of the same category, and it is a very sobering, uh, sobering thought to consider. So if you turn with me to Matthew 12, We'll look at the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to try and understand what it is and how it relates to this particular issue that's before us in 1 John 5. In Matthew 12, verses 22 through 32, I'll, I'll read the whole section and make a few summary comments on it. We read, Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, that the, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, we don't have time to look at every detail of this text, but I did want to give you the full context so that you can appreciate what's going on in this passage. In this passage, Jesus charges the Pharisees with con committing a grave sin, a sin that he calls blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and he declares they will never be forgiven, not in this age, not in the age to come. That is, now or in eternity, they will never be forgiven for that sin. And what was the sin? We don't have to scratch our heads and wonder. It's right here before us. They saw very clearly, the Holy Spirit's powerful works in the person of Christ. They acknowledged that he was doing these mighty works. They recognized that he was casting out demons. They didn't deny it. They couldn't claim they'd never seen it. They saw the fullest and clearest revelation that God ever gave to his people in the person and work of Christ, standing before them, doing these mighty works, and they rejected. They heard the people saying, can this be the son of David? That is, can this be the Christ? And they said, no way. He's doing it by the power of Satan. And Jesus then in that 
extended argument shows them how ridiculous, how absurd that argument is, how illogical it is. It makes no sense whatsoever. It's clear evidence of the hardness of their hearts. Jesus is doing these mighty works by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit would never give a clearer, fuller revelation than that, which was before those Pharisees, and they rejected it, and they denied it, and they committed what Jesus calls the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, a sin that will never be forgiven. Now, the sin we read about in 1 John may not be identical to this, but I claimed or I suggested that it's in the same category. We can describe this category, as I said, under the heading of sins against the Holy Spirit. They involve resistance to the revelatory work of the Spirit. The Pharisees committed the greatest of these offenses. No greater revelation, as I said, would ever be given. But we can also see in Scripture other examples of people who resist the Holy Spirit in a similar way. For that, I ask you to turn over to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, and we're going to consider the example of Stephen here in Acts 6 and 7. I'm going to read from Acts 6, roughly about verses 1 through 10, and then we're going to look briefly at chapter 7 at Stephen's speech. But what we read here is a, uh, in the early church, what happened is that the, the widows um, were, they were not being treated equally based on whether or not they, whether they were from Greek-speaking places, whether they were Hellenistic Jews originally, or whether they were from Israel. And so the apostles were going to resolve this by calling upon the church to appoint the very first deacons. So we read, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And as I read on, what I want you to take note of is how Luke in Acts here calls attention to the Spirit's work, particularly in the life of Stephen. You saw it right there in verse 3, how this was the, uh, that, that the apostles gave this um, requirement, that the men that you choose to be these deacons must be men who are full of the Spirit. And Stephen is going to stand out among those men who are chosen. So verse 4, as we continue, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon, and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. And so you see there how Luke calls attention specifically to Stephen's peculiar demonstration of the Spirit's power. As we read on in verse 6, These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. But then we're going to see some opposition arise here in Acts. And Stephen, full of grace and power, those are signs of the Spirit's working in him, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. 
and so on and so forth, you see the rising opposition against Stephen. But Stephen continually shows the power of the Spirit as the Spirit works in him to give him wisdom and to do signs and wonders through him. Eventually they're going to kill him. They're going to stone him, but not before Stephen gives this amazing speech in Acts chapter 7, whereby he shows the people, his persecutors, that they are doing that which their fathers before them had done. So let me ask you to scan over, turn over a page and scan down to verse 51 of chapter 7. And what we're going to see here is Stephen's final charge against the people, how he describes what they are doing to him. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You see what Stephen is saying there is that what they're doing in opposing him is resisting the Holy Spirit. It's a grave sin that is similar in nature to what the Pharisees did. But I would say that it doesn't quite rise to the level of what the Pharisees did, what Jesus charged the Pharisees with doing. And the reason I say that is because of who their ringleader was. Paul, then called Saul, was standing there as their ringleader. He approved of Stephen's execution. He went out from there, breathing threats against the church. He was one who was resisting the Holy Spirit. It was as if he stepped up to the, the line, to the very brink of committing that sin that other Pharisees had committed in the presence of Christ. But when Christ stopped him on the road of Dama to Damascus, then Paul repented, and Paul believed, and Paul found grace. I think that's why Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. Because he really, really recognized how grave his sin was. Not just because he was a murderer, but because of how he resisted the clear revelation of the Spirit. And yet God in his grace stopped him and granted him repentance. What does this have to do with 1 John? What I'm arguing is that in 1 John, in this context... Those false teachers who went out from the church were similarly resisting the clear revelation of the Spirit in a way that was unique in their case because they had gone with these Christians for some time, that they had been a part of their congregation. Think about how John has described the Spirit's work in the lives of these believers. We've seen it in several places. We've seen it, for instance, at the end of 1 John chapter 2. In verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. There he's speaking of the Spirit as the anointing that they've received from the Lord Jesus Christ. These Christians, like all Christians in every age, have been endowed with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has filled them, has anointed them. And the Spirit testifies to the truth of the gospel. Similarly there at the end of chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 24, we read, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. 
And then at the beginning of chapter 4, John gives us instructions how we can discern the true spirit, the Holy Spirit, from those false spirits who might, uh, might um, give rise to a false gospel. And ultimately it comes down to what is said about Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit always testifies concerning Jesus Christ, always holds him forward as the Son of God who was sent by the Father to give his life for our sins, to rise from the dead, and to ascend to the Father's right hand, the eternal Son of God who became a man to give his life for us. That is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And what these false teachers have done in going out of the church, in denying that gospel, is they have turned against that testimony. The Spirit's testimony through these believers to the truth of the gospel. They have rejected it and they have replaced it with a false gospel of their own making. And it's a grave sin. It is a sin that leads to death. John doesn't say that there's no possibility for repentance in their case. He simply is giving instruction to the believers so that they might understand what he's saying. That is, understand who he's telling them to pray for. He's not telling them to pray for those people. Not that he would tell them not to. But as he speaks about this privileged uh, responsibility, this privilege of intercession, he's calling them and he's calling us to pray for one another. Pray for those who are holding fast to the gospel. Pray for those who have believed in Christ as he is proclaimed in God's word and are holding fast but may be struggling in the Christian life. And so for the rest of our time together, I want to dwell on this more positive aspect of John's teaching here in chapter 5. Not the question about what kind of sin is uh, the sin that leads to death, but the assurance that John gives us that we might intercede for one another. I want to speak about this privilege of intercession. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. True, John will say, all wrongdoing is sin. He's not denying the reality of sin. He's not saying that there's some things that are wrongdoing, but they're not really sin. No, all wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that leads to death. That's rejection of Christ. There's sin that does not lead to death. And we are encouraged to intercede for one another. Normally, when we think of confessing our sins, we think individually. We think about ourselves, that we must cultivate a, uh, cultivate, uh, a habit of confessing our sins in our own lives. And that's true. John has taught us that in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. But he's also teaching us that we should cultivate a habit of praying for others. Praying that God would be gracious to others. That he would do his sanctifying work. That he would do his forgiving work in their lives. That he would restore them when they are fallen. Restore them back to fellowship. Now John is not saying that whether or not they receive life depends finally on our prayers. That depends finally on Christ's finished work for them. And we pray for them, not because we're worried that somehow if we don't, then, then they're going to fall through the cracks and not receive life from Christ. No, but because this is a great privilege and we know that they are in Christ. We know that they're believers, but we realize right now that person needs some prayer. They don't need me to come knock on their door and 
punch them in the face, so to say. They don't need me to come and rebuke them in the face. They need me to go to my knees before my Heavenly Father and pray for them. We ought to do that for one another when we see, when we see that uh, others are struggling in the Christian faith. And in that, then we might feel uh, bolder. We might feel more confidence to share with one another how we're struggling, to, to, to ask others that they might pray for us, they might encourage us in that way. We ought to cultivate that kind of culture in our midst, one where we don't rush to judging one another, one where we don't rush to rebuke one another, but we rush to encourage one another and to pray for one another. You see, as we reflect on all that John has written in, first, in this, this whole letter, we see that he sets a lofty standard for the Christian life. And as we read what he has written, we realize how often, how frequently, we all fall short. We all struggle to live up to the standard which John has set for us. Not one of us can read through this letter and say, I've got all that down. I've checked all those boxes. I'm good to go. Isn't the church lucky to have me? We can't say that because we realize how frequently we fall short. Sometimes our, the challenge in this letter was grammatical. That we, it's, it's hard to understand uh, until we put the translation in a different way. So, for instance, in 1 John 3, 6, and here I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible translation just to give you a sense of the difficulty and to remind you of it. Here the CSB translates, Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. And I mentioned when we went through that text how a friend of mine, reading that verse, remarked to me that that is one of the most depressing verses he'd ever read. But I helped him to understand that the idea here is not of sinning at all. There's no sense in which John is teaching us that Christians stop sinning altogether. He teaches us very clearly in this letter that the Christian life in this life is a gradual process of growth. That we won't be made perfect until Christ comes again or takes us home. But rather this idea here is one of continually sinning. And you see that then in many translations that add words like the New American Standard Bible adds the word continually to give you the sense. Or the English Standard Version says, keeps on sinning. No Christian keeps on sinning. That is, pursues a pattern of life that is settled in sin as a habitual choice. Christians are those who struggle against sin, who strive against sin. But other of the statements can't be explained so easily just by turning to some alternate translations. For example, in 1 John 3, 17, we were confronted by these words, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Even just this past week, I was confronted by ways in which I've done that in the past to people who were very dear to me. And so we're confronted with these things and we wonder, how can God's love abide in us? And there in that context, we saw that John teaches us how to speak to our condemning heart when our heart condemns us, that we're to reason with it, to bring it in line with our mind by reminding ourselves of the truth that Christ Jesus has settled our debt forever. That though our heart might condemn us on the basis of words like this, God 
does not condemn us, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Another way in which John helps us and encourages us when we're confronted by texts like these and we see this reality of sin in our lives that we struggle with is by encouraging us, as he's done tonight, to pray for one another, to intercede for one another. Let me read the words of Robert Yarborough from his commentary on this point. Prayer for transgressions, whether one's own or those of others, is as basic to Christian faith as the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. To their consternation, Jesus taught followers that they must reckon with forgiving each other repeatedly and ongoingly. Violation of the high standards of Christian devotion are inevitable. When a sibling in the family of God stumbles, the first response is to be intercession for the person in prayer in the presence of the divine head of the household. 1 John 1.9 is normally understood in terms of individuals confessing their own sin, but it may well be equally concerned with praying when others stumble. God, not the person who prays, will respond by giving the person life. And what Jarborough goes on to explain is that in giving him life, he gives all that comes with it, the fellowship, forgiveness, the joy that we, in, that we have in knowing that we are united with one another and with our maker through Christ. When we engage in intercessory prayer for one another, we stand in good company. Abraham interceded for Sodom. And Moses interceded for the people of Israel on more than one occasion. Solomon, Daniel, Nehemiah, and Ezra all interceded on behalf of their people confessing their sins and seeking God's pardon. All of them were heard. And of course, no one is more outstanding in this regard than our Lord Jesus himself. John has called him our advocate, as we read in 1 John 2, verse 1. And elsewhere, we read that he ever lives to intercede for us, in Hebrews seven twenty-five. In this, Jesus fulfills the words of Isaiah, who declared that Christ would make intercession for the transgressors. And his prayers are surely heard. Thus, before going to the cross, he encouraged Peter with these words. In Luke 22, 31 through 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Likewise, he prayed for all his disciples that the Lord would preserve them, and that he would sanctify them in the world. You can see that prayer in John 17. Jesus is the one who perfectly intercedes for us. His prayers are the prayers we most need. Nevertheless, amazingly, he calls us to participate in this intercessory work for one another. We know that we have eternal life through Christ. And we know that God hears our prayers and answers our prayers when we pray according to his will. And he has revealed that it is his will that we should pray for one another. Therefore, he instructs us when we see a brother or sister sinning to confidently pray for them. And he assures us that we will be heard. What will this look like then when that prayer is answered? Most likely, the way it always looks. God will grant that person life as he grants that person forgiveness and grants that person to find repentance 
and grants that person to overcome sins that beset him. Nevertheless, we don't concern ourselves with those things right off the bat. We concern ourselves with this wonderful duty and privilege of prayer. So we pray. We pray for one another. We pray because God exists and because we are his and he is ours. We pray because he hears us, because he answers us according to his will. And in the end, we pray as an expression of our love for one another and in obedience to the one who hears our prayers. So let us pray. Father in heaven, we recognize that we don't have the credentials to come into your presence to pray for ourselves or for others. We don't have the credentials that are necessary, but Christ does. He has made us righteous through faith so that we might have access, so that we might imitate him. Just as he intercedes for us, so we might intercede for one another. What a glorious privilege you've given us, Lord. What a gracious promise this is. Help us to be this kind of people, Lord, who pray for one another, who pray that you would be forgiving, that you would be gracious, that you would do your sanctifying work in our midst, that you would restore those who have fallen to fellowship. May we be a kind of people who are persistent in prayer, who are faithful in prayer, who pray as an expression of our love for one another and as an expression of our faith in you. These things, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.